It was the prophet Hosea who said, he who sows to the wind will reap a whirlwind. The apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. He who sows to please the spirit from that spirit will receive eternal life. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. There is a prevalent and prominent erroneous teaching in the church of America today that simply says that God's grace removes all earthly consequences for sin. And while that sounds good, the problem is the Bible doesn't teach that. Now don't misunderstand me. God's grace is amazing. It wipes away all condemnation. God's grace removes all shame and all guilt. It is because of the grace of God that God looks upon you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and does not see one shred of incriminating evidence. For when God looks upon your believing heart, he sees that you are clothed in the innocent righteousness of Christ. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is matchless. God's grace is marvelous. But God's grace does not remove earthly consequences. Another way for us to say that is to simply say that yesterday's choices carry tomorrow's consequences. The truth of that statement is no better on display than in the life of David. Today we continue our 10-part study of David's life. And while we are going to travel a significant chunk of Holy Scripture, this morning I just want to read one verse from the sacred text. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. 2 Samuel chapter 18, allow me to read verse 33. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. As he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. After about nine months of David's escapade with Bathsheba, the prophet named Nathan gained an audience with his king. It is Nathan who said to David, what you have done greatly displeased the Lord. The sword will never leave your house. You took Bathsheba 
the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, as your own. You have greatly displeased God. The Lord's going to give your wives to one very close to you. What you did, you did in secret. But what will be done, will be done in the broad daylight for all of Israel to see. And in response, King David simply utters the words, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan continued, the Lord will take away your sin. You will not die, but the child born to you will die. Friend, if that sounds gruesome to you on God's part, let me suggest this morning that that is gracious. David and Bathsheba deserve to die. According to the Levitical law, because of their adultery, both of them should have been stoned to death. But because of God's grace, he says, you will not die. But sin not only affects you, sin also affects others around you. Because of their disobedience before the Lord, their sin put the life of the child in jeopardy. Scripture tells us that David prayed, he wept, he fasted. He did not shower, did not shave. All day long, he just pleaded with the Lord. The servants looked at each other and they said, we've never seen the king act like this. On the seventh day, the child died. The servants said one to the other, we cannot let King David know that the child is dead. You saw how he acted when the child was alive. He'll fall to pieces if he learns that the child is dead. David heard the servants talking. He put two and two together and he understood that the child was dead. He went into his sleeping quarters. He took a bath. He showered. He put on sweet-smelling lotion. He clothed himself, and he went to eat. The servants asked him, why are you acting like this? This is not how we thought you would act. We thought you would lose it. And David said, while the child was still alive, I thought to myself, who knows? Maybe God will be gracious. But now the child is dead. Can I bring the child back to life again? The implied answer is no. And then David made his famous statement. I will go to the child, but the child will not return to me. At some point over his grieving and remorse and repentance and weeping and wailing and fasting, David came to this conclusion that yesterday's choices carry tomorrow's consequences. The next story in the Davidic narrative is a sordid story at best. We are told that Amnon was the firstborn son of David. He was next in line to be the king of Israel. We read that Amnon fell in love with his sister Tamar. Now, both Amnon and Tamar had the same daddy, that's David, but they had different mothers. When the scripture writer says that Amnon fell in love with Tamar, it could better be translated Amnon fell in lust with Tamar. He wanted to seduce his half-sister. 
he wanted to have her sexually. And because he knew that she was forbidden, it literally made him sick. And so Amnon devised a plan. It was a devilish scheme. He thought to himself, while I'm sick, I will ask for Tamar to make me a meal. And then she will come into my bedroom, sit on my bed, and feed me my meal. That's exactly the plan that he implemented. And Tamar went to the kitchen. She made some soup. She brought it to her half-brother Amnon. He invited her into the bedroom and very unassumingly asked her to sit right here on the edge of the bed. He said, my strength is so far gone. Will you please just feed me the meal? And after the meal was over, the Bible tells us that Amnon attacked Tamar. He overpowered her and he raped her. There's some listening to my voice today, and you know the agony of rape. What happened to you could have happened years ago, and yet it is still as fresh today in your mind's eye as the day it took place. And maybe your experience is like the one of our story. Maybe your assailant was one known by you trusted by you oh but the nightmare became your reality the unthinkable took place it wasn't a snatch and grab it was somebody that you knew and they took advantage of you and you know the emotional scars you know the emotional pain of what it is to be defiled and to be raped and you try to dismiss it you try to shove it under the carpet you try to just forget about it but it's always right under the surface and oh my friend if that's your experience, please know that as a church, we grieve with you. And we hate that that nightmare is your reality. But we want you to know, dear friend, you're not alone. You're here in a community of believers. In our story, once Amnon had Tamar and the dirty deed was done. He was filled with hatred and animosity towards her. So he ordered her to leave his presence and get out of his bedroom. She left, bewildered, broken, bruised. She stumbled and staggered through the palace hallway. The tears were streaming down her face. Tears were welling up in her eyes so she could not really see who was in front of her. And all of a sudden, she literally ran into her biological brother, Absalom. She ran into his arms, weeping, bitterly crying, but not a word was spoken. When Absalom saw that she came from the direction of Amnon's room, and when Absalom saw that his sister was crying so intently, he put two and two together. He knew what had happened. You see, for years, Absalom had questioned the flirtatious antics of his half-brother. He saw it. He wondered about it. And this day was confirmation that the unthinkable 
took place. Nobody said a word. Tamar didn't say anything. Absalom didn't say anything. But they all knew. One of the natures of sexual sin is that sexual sin is always left in the dark. It needs to be brought into the light of the Lord. We are told that for two years, Absalom allowed bitterness to fester in his heart, to build up hatred towards his half-brother Amnon. After two years, he approached his father David, and I think that David had a sneaking suspicion what had happened. So Absalom says to his father David, "Um, will you please give me permission to go to Ephraim and to shear the sheep? It's too big of a job for me to do by myself, so will you please allow Amnon to go with me? And I think that David knew that something had gone down. I think that all the while he believed that one day Absalom would retaliate. So in reply, King David said to his son Absalom, "Um, why don't you not only take Amnon with you, but take all of your brothers with you, hoping that if all of them go, then Absalom won't retaliate. They all went. They gathered there the valley of Ephraim. They sheared the sheep. And then Absalom got alone with his brother Amnon, and he killed him. He killed him out of retaliation for what he had done to his precious sister. Oh, there's some big brothers in the house today, and you understand Absalom, don't you? I mean, you know that if something happened to your sister, that you, you would be the one that would make sure Amnon would never do that to anybody else. Absalom knew that by his actions, he had forfeited his right to be king. So he ran. For three years, he was in exile. After three years in exile, we are told that King David sent an invitation for Absalom to come back home. Not just home to the capital city of Jerusalem, but to come back home to the palace. Now, the reason David did that is because he felt the pressure of the crowd. You see, Absalom was a crowd favorite. He was loved by everybody. I think one of the reasons he was loved by everyone is because the Bible says of Absalom that there was no one more handsome than Absalom in all of Israel. It describes him in these words. He had no blemish from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Now, I must be transparent with you this morning. It's that kind of guy that makes me sick at my stomach. It's the kind of guy that has the star-studded good looks. He has the physique. He has everything. He can grace the cover of any GQ magazine. Absalom was one who had no blemish on his body from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Oh, and Absalom had beautiful locks of hair. In fact, there were on occasions times when he would cut his hair out of convenience. The Bible tells us that every time he cut his hair, the hair weighed five pounds. You may think that's an insignificant detail, but oh, my friend, let me just remind you that in those days, the only time a man was supposed to cut his hair was for a Nazarite vow or a ceremonial cleansing. And Absalom would cut his hair for neither of those reasons, just merely out of comfort. This may give us an indication to the selfish demeanor of Absalom. But regardless, he had Hollywood good looks. Everybody loved him. People wanted to be with him. Others wanted to be like him. David felt the pressure. So he brought back the chosen boy of Israel. He brought back Absalom. But the Bible tells us that for two years, Absalom 
never saw his father's face. I know the palace is big, but it's not that big. For the scripture writer to tell us that for two years, Absalom never saw David is to communicate to us that David had made sure that they would never pass in the hallway. David made sure that Absalom would never be invited to eat a meal at the king's royal table. David made sure that he would never entertain Absalom, probably because Absalom had killed his firstborn son, Amnon. But for whatever reason, David permitted the father-son relationship between Absalom and King David to deteriorate. And I promise you that there will come a time when David will resent that. David will grieve the fact that he allowed that relationship to be at odds. It's easy for us to incriminate David. It's easy for us to say, David, how in the world could you allow that to happen? But friend, let me ask you, is there anybody in your family that you're at odds with? Maybe somebody that you haven't spoken to in years? And when you stop and think about why you haven't spoken to them, the reason kind of pales in comparison to the reason why David did not talk to Absalom. The reason David didn't talk to Absalom was because Absalom had killed David's firstborn son. And yet whatever problem you have in your family, whatever situation, crisis, argument, whatever thing that took place in your family so many years ago, it probably pales in comparison to what happened in David's family. But I do wonder... How many of you have a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a classmate, and you just don't like them for one reason or another because of what they said, what they did, it may be years ago, and you've nursed a grudge. You haven't spoken a word. And maybe today, before the sun sets this evening, you need to talk to that person because you never know when that day will be the last day. For two years, David did not speak to his son Absalom. Absalom knew that his father was absent. He, he knew that uh, David was giving him the cold shoulder. And so Absalom became overwhelmed with frustration and bitterness. Once again, there are people in the crowd, and you know the pain of an absent dad. You know what it is to be raised by an absentee father. You know the feelings of abandonment and frustration, of the, the feelings of resentment that rise up inside of you. You can relate to Absalom because you know what it is to have a dad but not have a dad. Maybe he left you and mom years ago. Maybe he's in the house but not really in the house. Maybe you have a father that gives himself 40, 60, 80 hours a week to work and you want to build a relationship with him but he stiff arms you all the time. Maybe you know what it is to be like Absalom. Absalom resented this, and so he thought to himself, how can I snatch the throne? He came up with this plan. He would go and intercept people who were coming to the city gate with problems for the king and his counselors. All the way back to Moses the leader of Israel would always entertain the problems of the people of Israel. It was their court system, so to speak. They could come and bring a grievance against an individual, and the king or one of those appointed by the king would sit at the city gate. He would hear the case and predict a verdict. He'd pronounce a verdict. 
And if it wasn't the king, it was a counselor he had appointed. It is Absalom who goes to the city gate and tells the other counselors, don't you worry about it. Father has sent me. Now, daddy didn't send him, but he still would intercept the people. He would solve their cases. He would alleviate their problems. He won over their heart. This went on for four years. I suspect David knew that Absalom was intercepting the people and fixing all their problems, but David did nothing about it. He did not want to confront the situation that was right there in his house. David permitted it to go on for four years. After those four years, Absalom gains an audience with his old man. He goes into King David and he demands that David make him king over Hebron, which is the very place that David started his rule and reign. For whatever reason, David acquiesced and he gave him Hebron. So now there was a quasi-king, um, there on the throne in Hebron. Eventually, servants came back to David and they gave this report. The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. In other words, this is a vote of no confidence in you, King David. That if it was put up to a popular vote, the people would choose Absalom over you every day of the week and twice on Sunday. This struck fear in David's heart. And so he began to flee. He fled Jerusalem. He abdicated the throne. And whenever there's an empty throne, somebody will snatch it. Wherever there's a place where leadership ought to be, but there's a leadership vacuum, somebody will snatch it. And that's what Absalom does. He comes into the capital city of Jerusalem, into the palace, to the thunderous applause of the crowd. He takes a seat on his father's royal throne. One of the advisors to King David was a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel became an advisor to Absalom. Ahithophel is a strange word. In fact, it's not the easiest to say. As I thought about it, it kind of sounds like uh, an ointment that you put on a rash. Oh, you, you got a rash? You'll put some Ahithophel on it and it'll all get better, right? That's kind of what it sounds like. Ahithophel is not medication. Ahithophel is actually a person, an advisor. Ahithophel became the advisor to Absalom. Listen to what he counseled Absalom to do. You need to lie with all of your father's concubines. All the mistresses that he left in charge of the palace. Absalom, you need to sleep with them. And I'll tell you what. I will construct a tent I'll place that tent right outside the sleeping quarters of the king on the flat rooftop. I will put the tent right there. I'll organize all of the concubines or the quasi-wives of your daddy. And one by one, they can go into that tent and boy, you can do whatever you want to do because you are king. Now Absalom's good looking. He's handsome. He's young. He's vivacious. He thinks to himself, that is a great idea. Thanks. You're an awesome advisor. In fact, I'm going to let you advise me on everything. This sounds like a wonderful idea. Friend, does this sound strange to you? To put a tent on the flat rooftop 
that extends beyond the palatial sleeping quarters of the king so that one close to David would be able to sleep with all of David's wives in broad daylight so all of Israel can see? Is this simply a fulfillment of the divine discipline that Nathan leveled against King David? Is this just simply Ahithophel being part of God's cosmic plan so that God's word would stand true? Is it that or is it that plus something else? If you were to look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, you'd find a listing of David's mighty men. There's a section of David's mighty men that are called the 30. And oh, if you were a mighty warrior, if you were a military man, you wanted to be part of the 30. The 30 were the elite. They were the, they were the SEAL team, right? I mean, they were the best of the best. If you read the listing of the 30 of David's mighty men, you will find uh, that there's a man there by the name of Eliam, son of Ahithophel. Eliam. Now wait a minute. Eliam, that sounds familiar. We've come across that man named Eliam before. Do you remember um, Bathsheba is described as the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Last time we were together, I told you that Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He's one of the last one listed as the mighty 30 of David's mighty men. So Uriah was one of David's best soldiers, but also Eliam was one of David's best soldiers. And Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam. Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. That means that Ahithophel must be the grandfather of Bathsheba. Oh, now this is beginning to piece together. That Ahithophel thought to himself, I know what King David did against my granddaughter. How he seduced her. How he brought her into the palace. How he slept with her. I know what King David did. I heard the whisperings. I know what people said. I know how David sent a word to Joab to put Uriah in the front of the line where the fighting is fiercest. When the enemy attacks to withdraw and Uriah was struck dead. Ahithophel says, I know what the king did to my granddaughter and my grandson-in-law. And King David brought shame to my family. For 15 years, Ahithophel had wanted to get even. I imagine that Ahithophel was the kind of guy who said, listen, I don't get mad. I just get even. That was Ahithophel. He said, I'm looking for the opportune time to disgrace David. I'm looking for that opportune moment to bring shame upon David. And he saw in Absalom the son of David, a great opportunity to have Absalom bring shame upon David by sleeping with David's mistresses and concubines in a tent in broad daylight for all of Israel to see in the very same location, the very same spot where David had brought shame upon Ahithophel and his granddaughter. That's the very same spot that Ahithophel will bring shame upon David through his son Absalom. Do you see how convoluted and complex the consequences of sin are? 
Ahithophel was so wrapped up in an unforgiving spirit, filled with rage and resentment and bitterness, that the scripture writer tells us that later on, when Absalom does not do what Ahithophel tells him to do in a way of attacking David on another occasion, and when Absalom chooses the advice of another counselor, Ahithophel is so upset at that, that his advice is not taken, that he stomps out of the palace, he goes down to his house, gets his house in order, and then he hangs himself because he's so outraged and resentful to anything and everything that belonged to David. The cords of bitterness and an unforgiving spirit suffocated life out of Ahithophel. Friend, do you know anybody like Ahithophel? Are you like Ahithophel? Do you know how to hold a grudge, nurse a grudge, keep a grudge? Do you know what it is to not forgive somebody for what they said about you, what they did to you, uh, how they treated you? It may have happened last week. It may have happened 15 years ago. But you know how to nurse a grudge. Oh, you know how to speak a barbed wire word. You know how to, how to fling a slanderous comment. You know how to put somebody in their place because of what they did to you, said to you, or did something uh, or, or, or said about you. You know how to nurse a grudge. Anybody in the house that looks like Ahithophel? I've been told a long time ago that forgiveness is learning how to set the prisoner free only to discover that you were the prisoner. An unforgiving spirit only hurts you. Forgiveness is forfeiting your right to get even. Because let's be honest, there are some grandfathers in the house and you say to yourself, now wait a minute, I can relate to Ahithophel. I mean, if, if there was somebody in a position of power that seduced my granddaughter, I'd go shoot them. I'd go, I'd go have a fight with them. I would go do something so they would never do it again. I mean, there are a lot of grandfathers in the house that say, oh, I can understand Ahithophel and all of his resentment. But friend, an unforgiving spirit harms nobody else but you. And the cords of unforgiveness can suffocate life out of you. That's what happened to Ahithophel. Because yesterday's choices carry tomorrow's consequences. We are told that uh, Absalom not only took the wives of his father, took the throne of his father, but he ultimately wanted to take the life of his father. He assembled the military of Israel and he said, we're going to track down, hunt down David. Now David had been in exile for years. And while he was in exile, he had garnished, garnered the support of many of his former soldiers. So he had a, a small army of his own. They heard that Absalom and the army of Israel were coming after them. And David said to his troops, be gentle to the young man Absalom for my sake. Listen, guys, if, if you respect me at all, David says, then let Absalom live. I know 
that he's done things to hurt me, but he's still my son. And once my son, always my son. So you be gentle to Absalom. You got it? Every man to a man looked at his former king and said, yes, sir. David didn't stutter. David did not stammer. David was not confusing on his directions. Be gentle towards the young boy, Absalom. He's still my son. Do it for my sake. The fight was really no fight at all. The Bible tells us that David and his men annihilated Israel's army. So that on that day there were 20,000 casualties. And as they were in pursuit of Absalom, he was riding a mule. And, and, and I think probably the mule was spooked. And, and Absalom uh, began to ride away. I can visualize in my mind that Absalom, as he's riding the mule, he's looking behind to see if, if, if David and some of David's soldiers are pursuing him. And as he turns around, he sees that, that mule is going in the direction of a wooded area. And as soon as he turned around, it was so fast, he, he, he couldn't do anything about it. It just happened in a blink of an eye. That, that as he was riding into that wooded area, there were many limbs of the oak trees that were low. And because they were low, they caught Absalom in his neck and in his hair. And he began to hang there because the mule kept on riding. And Absalom kept working, trying to get himself loose. And the more he worked, the tighter those branches became. And Absalom is there, and it's suffocating his very air out of his lungs. He's hanging there. In the trees. It's Joab, the general, you know, the one that was in the battlefield to put Uriah in the front of the line. It's Joab who comes upon Absalom. He sees him hanging there. He remembers the instructions of his king. And in spite of all that, General Joab says, I am going to put an end to this fighting, and David is going to take his rightful place on the throne, and Joab grabbed three javelins and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom. And Absalom died. The servants said, we, sir, we, we, we've got to cut down the body and somebody's got to go tell King David that Absalom's dead. Word got back to King David When he received the news, the Bible says he was shaken. That's a word that means that he was physically and visibly and emotionally shaken. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I know, I know you've done things to hurt me and to harm me, but, but you're my son. You're my boy. We are told that he wept bitterly. Absalom, my son, my son. In a crowd of this size, there are some parents that know the pain of losing a child. You know that pain. 
And for a parent, that's the parent's greatest nightmare, right? It's life's most vicious curveball. It's not how it's supposed to go. The children are supposed to bury the parents. Parents aren't supposed to have to bury their children. And David heard that his son died. And beyond all that, I think David is grieving a deteriorated relationship because he thinks to himself, I just, I just wanted another conversation. So many conversations unfinished, David must have thought. If I could just have a few more moments to tell him that I loved him, to tell him I forgive him, to tell him that he's my son. Oh God, why not me? He had so much life to live. Why not me? Why couldn't I have died instead of him? Every parent listening to me this morning, you, you know the pain of David in this moment. You can hear the pain in his voice. You can see it etched across his brow. And we leave David this morning and he is grief stricken. My son. My son, Absalom. You know, there's a danger in preaching a sermon like this from this passage of Scripture. And the danger is twofold. Number one, the danger is that you will then look back over the landscape of your life and you'll come to this conclusion that all my suffering must be a consequence of my sin. And I want to caution you against that. Because certainly, sometimes we suffer and it has nothing to do with us. Because it rains on the just and the unjust. You remember the story of Job? Job suffered immensely and the scripture writer tells us Job did nothing wrong. He was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes, friend, you suffer just because the old devil is trying to bring down the glory of God and you're a pawn in his ploy. So sometimes your suffering has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the debate and the dialogue that the devil has with God. Oh, but there are other times when your suffering has everything to do with you. And you are suffering because of direct consequences of your selfish sin. Case in point, David. I promise you that David would have said, Numerous times, if I could just go back and undo what I did, I would do it. If I could just go back and, 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 and on that night that I saw Bathsheba, oh, if I just would have looked away, turned away, and walked away, then I would not have set myself on that cover-up where I had to lie about the adultery and bring in her husband Uriah and have him killed. And oh, I wish I could just go back and redo it. But David knew that all of this was because of his sin. So sometimes in your life, suffering happens because it rains on the just and the unjust. But sometimes suffering happens because it's a direct consequence of your sin. And right now you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, pastor, you're not helping me much at all. How do I know the difference? How do I know if I'm suffering because the devil's trying to bring down the glory of God and using me as a, as a pawn in his ploy? Or what if I'm suffering because of something I did wrong? How do I know? And my best advice is this, ask the Spirit of God to connect the dots in your life.
That's the best I can give you. Because if you're a child of God, your salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit can reveal to you and connect the dots of why am I suffering? Why am I going through this? And sometimes the Spirit of God reveals the reason of why you are suffering. And other times the Spirit of God may not because you cannot force the Spirit of God to do anything. But even in those moments, you just say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you. So the first danger is to see all suffering as a consequence of sin. The second danger is to see God as something other than gracious. And I want to caution you against that. Because God is gracious. He is so gracious in this story. I contend that that God is gracious to David because David is alive. He should have died. He should have been stoned to death because of his adultery. And I want to contend that the grace that was given to David early in his life when he went to the valley and defeated Goliath, when he went and was installed king at the age of 30, when he ruled for 20 years and everything he touched turned to gold and everything was going well, in those times we would all agree that is God's hand of gracious blessing. And I want to contend that God is still gracious unto David. He is as gracious to David at the end of his life as he is at the beginning of his life. So if I'm cautioning you, not to see all consequences as a, as a direct result of sin, but some of the consequences are right there. And also, I don't want you uh, not to see God as a gracious God. Then you think to yourself, well, pastor, what's the point? What am I supposed to take away from here? And here's the takeaway. I think that you and I do not see our sin seriously enough. This is a story that shows us in vivid color The complexity of sin, the grossness of sin, the consequences of sin. And I don't think you and I see our sin seriously enough. We sweep it under the carpet. We describe it as boys being boys, girls being girls, teenagers being teenagers, adults being adults. We just kind of laugh it off as a moral mishap, as simply a mistake, as an alternative lifestyle, as not that big of a deal, as everybody else is doing it. And we sweep it under the carpet and we say that sin is not that big of a deal and I came this morning to tell you that sin is a big deal in the sight of God because it required God to send his son Jesus Christ to be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die on the cross in your place, take all of your condemnation upon himself, endure the hell that you should experience, and Jesus did it for you, and though he was slain, he was placed in a borrowed grave, and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Don't you think that if God could have saved you in an easier way, in a simpler way, he would have done it, but it required the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the blood of Jesus Christ was required to save your sinful soul and to save my sinful soul. God takes our sin seriously. We would do well to take it as seriously as God. And as I see this son of David, Absalom, hanging on a tree and swords piercing his body, And Absalom being a young man whose life was cut short. And Absalom hanging in those trees because of sin. The sin of somebody else. I can't help but tell you, I see another son of David 
And I hope somebody's about to get happy because I'm about to get happy. Because when I look in this picture of death and grief and remorse and repentance and I see the son of David Absalom hanging on the tree, I'm reminded of another son of David named Jesus who hung on a tree and he hung on a tree and swords pierced his side. And Jesus was a young man whose life was cut short. He was hanging on that tree, not because of his sin, but because of other sin. And Jesus, the son of David, was hanging on that tree, pierced by a sword, a life cut short, hanging there to make us holy. He took our hell upon himself. He took our punishment that we deserved. And Jesus was hanging there on the tree. He gave up his ghost. He offered God his spirit. They took his dead body down, placed him into a borrowed grave. And on the third day, life began to breathe again in the body of Jesus. And Jesus burst forth from the tomb. So because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because that son of David lives again. God's amazing grace may not remove all of my earthly consequences of my sin, but because of God's amazing grace, he will help me cope with my consequences because of the power and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that yesterday's choices carry tomorrow's consequences. And this morning I wonder, is there anybody here in need of the grace of God? Maybe you need the amazing saving grace of God because you've never accepted Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. Today is the day of your salvation. Oh, but maybe you're here today and you are a believer. But you know what it is to have an unforgiving spirit. Oh, you know what it is to give somebody the silent treatment for years. You know what it is to have something hurtful and harmful done to you. You know what it is to have pain and agony. And maybe this morning you just need to set the prisoner free. Maybe you need to forgive somebody. Maybe you're here, you need to join this church. Whatever it is, you respond in obedience to God's amazing grace. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, we pray that sinners will come to faith in Christ. We pray that those who are saved uh, will come and fall on our faces before you. And Father, today, if there's a conversation that needs to take place with a family member that's estranged, a friend or a coworker that's been shoved away and pushed aside by us, help us to do it. In this very moment, please convict us of sin. Please help us to take it as seriously as you do. And please help us to fall on the amazing grace of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.